0: Uh, This is St. Luke's Sunday Forum, and uh, before the pandemic of the coronavirus, we did this in the parish hall, and uh, since then, we have been videotaping via Zoom all of our guests, and uh, today is very different, sadly, angeringly different, frustratingly different, because Another African-American human being was killed yesterday by uh, a member of the police force, a person who was not armed and it did not have to happen. And we are going to talk about all the specifics. Uh, Mr. Brooks uh, was killed and then there were protests. And um, I have with me uh, one of my colleagues, the uh, Reverend Kim Jackson who is the head of the Church of the Common Ground, uh, which is uh, an offering of church and spiritual community to brothers and sisters in the human race in the human family who experience homelessness. And she and her cohort and colleagues are uh, officed here. Um, And I do want to tell you that after she and I have this conversation, then we will have our regularly scheduled video Zoom with Jason, Lyon and Tim Hartley, uh, two wonderful friends of mine, husbands, fathers, uh, with one another. Um, and they have been agents of cultural change. And uh, Tim particularly has been involved in talking across the divide. And so uh, there's a full 45 minute forum that will follow um, this live forum. But uh, I am here with Kim Jackson and I want to thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me, Ed.
0: You're very welcome. Yeah. I, 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 you need to know that Kim is really, uh, not only did she work really hard last night, and she's going to tell us about that, uh, but also um, she's going to work in a few minutes with Church of the Common Ground. And before I left my apartment early this morning, I texted her and asked her if she would do this. And on the spur of the moment, she is doing this. And I'm very grateful to you. For your Absolutely. Thing. Thank you. So, um, and also, <laughs> uh, Kim and I had a conversation for the forum on the Church of the Common Ground about three weeks ago. So you can catch that because I'd love for you to know about the Church of the Common Ground. But now let's talk about what happened yesterday, please.
1: Sure, so um, it's hard to keep updates in mind actually. So Friday night, Sherrod Brooks was shot um, by a police officer. Uh, there was a confrontation that took place he had been. He was found sleeping in his car in the Wendy's uh, drive-through line. They responded to the call, and um, you know, consequently, I think at this point many people have seen the video. There was a struggle, and he ran. Um, he ran away, and uh, then was was shot and gunned down. Um, interestingly, I, I went out. So uh, it's important for folks, particularly Episcopalians, to know that where this shooting took place is about a mile and a half from Emmaus' house, which is one of our ministries, um, and a ministry that I have been able to work for and with um, over the years. I served as their interim vicar of their chapel, I ran one of their freedom schools, and so Peoples Town is just a a mile and a half from the shooting location, so that is very much um, a part of the Episcopal community in many ways. But um, a dear friend of mine, who is also a pastor, lives in that neighborhood, and so she reached out. She had been on the ground since 10:30 that night. She came, called me the next day and said, "You know, can you come down and can you bring clergy? Um, we need clergy presence here." And so that's how I found myself down there in that neighborhood. Um, and I think it's important to note, you know, when shootings happen, oftentimes uh, people don't know who the victim is, and so. One, so Rashad's sister came out at 1030 the night that he was shot and stood and bore witness and began protesting because for her, she was out there because another black man who was unarmed had been gunned down by a police officer. It wasn't until three hours later that she learned that it was her brother that she was out there for. And so there was a lot of hurt and sadness and um, a lot of anger. It, that community is not, um, is not unfamiliar with violence, and they're not unfamiliar with police violence, and so um, I think a lot of what you saw, if you looked at the images last night, you know, Wendy's was set on fire, people took over the highway, um, a lot of that, is, it's not just about Rashad Brooks, right, um, this is about a neighborhood and a community that has been bubbling for a long time, and of course, it's about, you know, about Ahmaud Aubrey and and so many others too, right? Um, so last night, again, it's just this continued bubbling over of um, of people who have gone unheard for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's just deep, breathe deeply about that. Yeah. Um, what you said takes my breath away about the sister yeah. of Mister Brooks going out there and not even knowing. Yeah. That she was protesting on his behalf until three hours later yeah that's stunning I also want to breathe in your um, either intentional or unintentional reference to a truth uh, that Dr. King articulated Mm -hmm. that protests and angry protests are often expressions of not feeling heard that's right and that this has been bubbling for decades. That's right. In that neighborhood, and I'm taking in, Kim, uh, this business of about it being in our neighborhood. We should yeah. claim every neighborhood in Atlanta as our neighborhood. That's right. Um, I am so impassioned about that. Reality. And when you're talking about Emmaus House, you're talking about double double our neighborhood. That's right. Because we have been there since Austin Ford of blessed memory established that um, it is a diocesan presence. So I'm just really grateful and I'm taking in um, the awareness and the knowledge of those three. Realities, and there, there's much more you said, but let's go on because we don't thank God for your coming here. Yeah. And <laughs> I apologize for texting you, but I no. think before you got up this morning.
1: No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. I'm glad to have an opportunity to oh, talk good. a little bit about what, what's going on. Oh, good. Yeah.
0: So now I'm curious and interested, and I think everybody ought to know about the chaplains for the protesters. Can you talk a little bit about that? kind of gathering
1: yeah so um we call ourselves the Atlanta protest chaplains which is modeled after so protest chaplains kind of emerged on the scene during the Occupy movement in New York and um was kind of reinstituted again during the Black Lives Matter movement when um, Eric Brown was was gunned down and so When the first protest began two weeks ago or so at the CNN Center, um, I, along with some colleagues, got together and we formed an intentionally multiracial, multiracial, multi-faith group of lay and clergy who come down as protest chaplains. And we we play a really unique role. We are neither um, there to police anybody, (laughs) we are not the police, we're not there to act as agents on behalf of the police. We're really clear about that, um, and we're and we're also not necessarily protesters. Um, we we sit in this in between space, and actually, literally, we stand mm. in an in between space between protesters and police officers, mm. and hold space. Uh, so when I first gathered the group of people, we gathered on Zoom, and I began to talk about kind of my vision for what I hope for Atlanta protest chaplains to be. I was really clear about saying. I think that clergy in particular are uniquely trained to bear witness to hurt. We, we know how to do that. We sit with people as they are watching a loved one die. We bear witness to pain. And so I felt like we needed to be at those protests to bear witness to the pain. We also serve as a, you know, we help de-escalate things. So uh, yesterday, over the course of the protests, there was some people who were pretty convinced that they wanted to take over the highway and um, and early on there just simply weren't enough people to do that. I'm not sure you can ever do it safely but there certainly was not a critical mass to do it in any real significant way and so we protest chaplains actually stood on the other side of the barrier and asked people to wait, to, to not take over the highway. At that time, it was, it was still daylight. It was still, um, there just weren't enough people. And we got to, to serve in that role of just kind of de-escalating, getting people down off the burn and going back down. But I think even more importantly, there was a young man, a young African-American man. He's probably six feet tall, you know, kind of a big guy. And he stood on that highway on the side, you know, across the barrier and he just he just needed to look at the officers. There were Mm -hmm. state troopers lined up there. Mm -hmm. He didn't need to say anything. He just needed to stand there. And so as a protest chaplain, uh, there were two of us, one on each side so that the police officers wouldn't bother him and just allowed him to have his moment. Mm And ultimately we all wept Mm. in that moment Mm. as he stood and tears flowed down his eyes. And um, there was just such a palpable amount of pain bottled up in that young man Mm. that I think was was such a display of the pain that that so many of us have. Mm. That we as African-Americans, certainly he is an African-American male, but that we as African-Americans in this country have, he was really symbolic of that. And we did what we do as chaplains. We simply stood and mm. bore witness. Mm. We made sure the police let him stand there and have his time. And, and we just, we were there for him. And we said to him over and over, we see you. Mm. We see you. Mm. Because so many African-Americans don't feel seen. And I think particularly African-American young men who look like him, you know, he's kind of this big football player. Um, he's often only seen as a, As someone who could harm, and and I wanted him to know, we see you, and so that's that's some of what we do as as protest chaplains.
0: Thanks for telling that story. It's extremely extremely moving, and I maybe too frequently repeat my one of my mentors who says, nothing can ever be healed unless people feel safe, seen soothed and secure
1: yeah
0: and thank god that y'all were there to do that for him because he had to express himself
1: that's right
0: he had to express himself yeah i mean the whole business of being fed up Mm -hmm. with this narrative and not having any external evidence that the the storyline is going to change right and to have one more exhibit visit us so closely, it's easy for me to empathize with that young man. Yeah. I mean, you just have to stand.
1: Yeah. And mm. that's literally what he, he just stood there with state troopers in front of him and atlanta police department officers on the other side of him and he just stood stood in defiance stood in strength stood in power stood in grief stood in rage and it was it was an incredibly powerful moment yeah
0: reminds me of that gospel song when you've done all you can do just just stand and he did and y'all came and stood with him yeah it's so powerful and it's a call i think to all of us we need to stand with one another yeah and particularly people who walk around in my skin who are never susceptible to this kind of stuff and bring a certain amount of safety with us for their all the white people who are listening um i just preached about everybody's got a divine contract in this thing Mm. and we've got to do something everybody has an essential job and this may be something for you to consider you know is standing with people so um i hate to move beyond that moment um while i'm still feeling it um i uh, you raised the issue and this is so, I'm a protester from May of 1968. It sure. was my first protest. And it was after Dr. King was assassinated, and it was when uh, Reverend Abernathy brought the Poor People's March through Macon, Georgia, where I was the uh, student at Mercer and Macon. And I was the student body president, and I felt a call to organize protest, and join them from faculty and, and students. And um, it was a turning point for me because, uh, number one, I felt what I l- had heard Rabbi Heschel say before—that when he marched with Dr. King, he felt like his legs were praying. Mm. Protesting is praying in with my mind. Feet. Yeah, you know, my feet, my legs, what it was. And 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 I just want to hold that up. And I rush to say, when I was doing some of the work. Uh, in Los Angeles during the Occupy movement when I was uh, rector of All Saints Pasadena and we would go downtown to the Occupy occupation where there were classes and all the things that were happening in major cities we did have this phenomenon of anarchists coming in and really trying to disturb the constructive criticism intrinsic in that protest sure and i know that that's happened in atlanta and i was just curious i'm I'm, i get so angry because there is this horrible toxic cocktail between the white anarchists most of them are white i think that's right and um and then right wing people who want to say that protests are not intrinsically constructive, but are intrinsically destructive, which they're not, not, pro- not the protest I know about. So was any of that going on last night?
1: Yeah, so there were white agitators. I don't, I, I don't know what their philosophies um, were. They were often young white um, boy men and young white women, Um you know, my colleague who was down there as, as a clergy person at one point said, I have to take my collar off and deal with this. <laughs> uh, to which I responded, no, you can deal with this with your collar on. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's actually really powerful that you do speak to yeah. these young people with your collars on. Um, I, You know, we've been out on the streets protesting down at the CNN Center for the last two weeks. Um, I mean, we've been present throughout this and this is the most angry that I've gotten was watching these young people young white people in particular um, you know launch I used to say you know in Atlanta APD what are you doing you're, you're fighting you know children with water bottles and then as I watched them throw gallon sized water bottles over I was like that's a little it's a little war but it, it is it's it's mostly young white white kids um, and when I spoke to them, when I wasn't raging and speaking to them, but when I spoke to them in a in a more calm manner, it was clear to me that their their stories are a little more complex than what we've been telling. Um, so some of those some of those young white people do live in in and around that neighborhood, mm. and um, some of them actually have friends who I think real authentic friendships with black people, and so they have a certain amount of shared rage. Um, mm. It certainly does not match that of what it is to live in black skin, but right. um, I don't want to diminish the value of their feelings. Um, and 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 yes, they also were just simply provocateurs who were there to help make the fire bigger and to you know make larger explosions. It, again, but it, it's complicated, you know. I I listen to so I would say 90% of my job as a protest chaplain is simply to listen to the stories of the people who come. To, to tell their stories to the police officers. And uh, you know, I listened to a white man rail for a good 20 minutes about recognizing the disparity, right? He could tell his own story of being pulled over while he knew he was drunk and the police officer saying, hey, can you just call your buddy and go home? And he was able, he was like, it was clear that he was coming into an awareness of his own privilege at that moment and he was so angry about it. And so I don't want that story to be lost in the midst of all of the anarchists that that do show up and the provocateurs. Um, And again, I think it's so important, Ed, to name that the vast majority of people out there, white and black and Latinx and Asian, the vast majority of us are out there to be peaceful and to, to share the truth, right, to tell the truth. So, you know, there was this black woman who came down and she had a picture of a loved one that had been shot and she was holding it. And she just needed to stand at the front line of those police officers. And you know, she's got me and other clergy there to, to help make sure that she feels safe to do this. And she just needed to tell that story. Mm. And she needed to talk to those police officers mm. about how, how unsafe she felt mm. because of their actions. And that's what most people are down there to do mm. is to, to express that rage and that hurt, and that distrust. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I also wanna name, you know, Atlanta Police Department is is a very black police department. There are a lot of African Americans who are serving on that department. It was not by accident last night that, uh, you know, 95% of the officers who stood and held the line were African American. I'm clear that was on purpose and strategic. And so there's conflict there as African-American protesters, look at African-American police officers and, and say, how can you betray us mm-hmm. in this way? You know What's happening here? And I think we've got a lot of reckoning to do around that issue, and we, we have to have some conversations about, well, what are the occupations, what jobs are available to African-American, particularly African-American men, mm-hmm. that give them a pension, that give them health insurance, mm-hmm. that give them opportunities for mm-hmm. advancement, right? Like There are not a whole lot of choices there. Uh, but it does create this tension for for them as African American people, right, who are wearing these uniforms. And so I got to hear those stories too, as the police officers tried to explain, "I'm black first. You know I, I hadn't I hadn't had to I, I hadn't heard that from a police officer before until last night when they just kept saying, "Listen, we are black first. We are black first. And we also have a job that allows us to feed our kids, mm-hmm. that allows us to have health insurance, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is, it's just a very complex thing. It's a very complex time. And I think that complexity is, um, is somewhat unique to Atlanta because of the makeup, the racial makeup of our police force. Mm-hmm.
0: I wanna talk about policing, but before I do, I just want to go back over and just highlight um, that umbrella point that you're making is, is when we are watching news, please let us share with ourselves and with other people that we are seeing a much more complex picture than frequently the media either wants to or has time to unpack. And that there are provocateurs, there are anarchists, and most of them are white, and not all the white folks are coming at it. From that, they are feeling a true, genuine um, sense of solidarity and also of being vulnerable in their own lives also. And then what Kim just shared about the police officers. And I mean, some of my closest, one of my closest friends is um, an African-American female police officer. Mm -hmm. And she carries all of that and she feels called by God to do it, you know? And sure. so let's, let's look at the humanity, the com- complex humanity of it all when we're looking at all of this. Well, we have to talk about policing because it seems from what I can garner that a lot of us who care about ending racism and white supremacy... Uh, know that it's got to have a lot of f- faces to it, like healthcare and education, etc. Yeah. But policing and police reform has got to be maybe the first thing that we uh, uh, attack or, or, or address. And I am going to come back later and talk to, uh, to you about poli- your being a policymaker <laughs> sure. as well as a, a thinker and a leader and a pastor on the street. Um, Could you talk about where you are in your thinking in these last two weeks about police reform?
1: Yeah, I mean, police reform is necessary. We've known this for a very long time that uh, police officers have been trained um, often to use lethal force in non-lethal force situations. Um, Certainly we can talk about policy and Georgia state policy around use of force um, and the ways that that needs to be changed. You know, here's the thing, I I operate often in stories, and and so as I stood and listened to these police officers talk to protesters, you know, I had this police officer, he took down his mask because he wanted to make sure they could see him, and he said, you know, listen, I am from here, I grew up in Atlanta, I was born here, I was raised here, and when I became a police officer, I had a choice, and I said, no, I want to work in Atlanta because I want to help people. I want to help my people was his statement. So what we need to do is we need to reform policing so that they are able to live into that calling mm. to help people. Mm. Because right now, as it's shaped, as it's framed, that's not what's able to, able to happen, right? So police officers, and I, and I think that his story is, is common for so many of those officers. They wanna help people. And so we can frame policing and reform it in such a way that they are actually helpful. You know, so I think about the times that I've encountered police and very few times have they actually been helpful. But they want to be helpful and so I think we can make some, we can make some adjustments. Um, you know, Quite frankly, we need more social workers and mental health experts than we need police officers. Our police squads are way too big. So I, I used to work as an EMT, as a medic for, for a couple of years and um, so I worked with firefighters, right? And I don't know if you know the evolution of firefighting, but it, it, it used to be, so volunteer, there was a lot of volunteer firefighters, um, it wasn't a full-time job, and then it became kind of an institutionalized, full-time thing, particularly in large cities, because if a fire started in a large city, you needed it to be put out, or the whole city would burn, right? Mm-hmm. But as technology advanced, and we got smoke detectors, and sprinklers in buildings, there were a whole lot less fires that were taking place. So firefighters had to be retrained to do other tasks. Mm. So now when a firefighter, when a firefighter shows up, there's gonna be somebody on that truck who's trained as a paramedic. There's gonna be somebody on that truck who knows how to make sure that we can stop it bleeding, that we can resuscitate you if necessary. Because there just simply weren't enough fires. Mm-hmm. We have to look at policing in this way too. Crime, violent crime especially, has continued to go down in the United States over the years. So we have to look at, okay, there's not violent crime in the same amounts, so what retraining can we do? Mm. What what do we do now? So maybe our police officers also become trained to resuscitate people Mm. when necessary. Mm. Maybe our police officers also become retrained to I, to take care of all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect that when they re- do that retraining, though, they also will no longer need to be carrying lethal weapons on yeah. them. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, and there are models. This is the thing, it's amazing to me to hear people talk about, well, we can't have police officers who aren't armed because, you know, there are so many guns in this country. Well, yes, there are a lot of guns in this country, and we need to address that on a policy level. And there are models of police officers who exist without guns. It's possible. And then the other thing I wanna add, so my wife and I, sorry, I get really passionate about this. Go! So my, my wife and I will sometimes vacation on an island. We I vacation on Defusky Island, mm-hmm. Defusky, um, which is just between Georgia and South Carolina. And Defusky Island, when we're there, we, we tend to stay there for about seven, eight days. We never see a police officer. A- at no point in the process of being there for those eight, nine days, have we ever seen a police officer mm-hmm. yet our things are never stolen we've we've never been held up right like and and it's safe and it's safe not because of the presence of police officers it's safe because a community chose to look out for themselves and to care for themselves right uh, and so there there are models here there are options that we can we can take on if we believe in one another's ability to actually care for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the last thing I'll say, and then you can ask me another question, is so often people believe that police officers are the deterrent to people cre- committing violent crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing we see about, you know we wanna have hate crimes legislation in Georgia because I guess we think that if someone's gonna commit a hate crime, maybe they'll stop um, from committing that crime because they know they'll get extra years. That's not typically how a person's mind works. Mm-hmm um put people who commit violent crimes commit violent crimes and again that's the that's not very many of us and police officers then respond and do some investigation but very rarely are they there when it's actually happening right so we have to do these other interceptions right we have to touch these other points of addressing issues of healthcare and employment and poverty we have to give kids opportunities to make real money that's better than selling drugs on the street and until we address those things then yeah we we do need some police officers but i think if we can attack those issues Mm -hmm. our need for policing will just continue to go down and down and down
0: yeah yeah have you seen a document in existence at all (laughs) that goes at the comprehensiveness of what we need to address
1: Yeah, so the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Lives Matter website, and and let me be clear, like they're... Black Lives Matter is kind of this kind of loosely organized uh, group of folks, but there is a real policy. They have a lot of policies where they address um, all of these different issues. So it's from education to mass incarceration, to policing, to healthcare. There's an entire section now on COVID-19 and talking about the racial disparities around that as well. So yes, Black Lives Matter movement, the Black Lives Matter folks have done a lot of work very smart people thought pe- thoughtful people have gotten together to say let's look at this on a systemic level and talk about all the different touch points that we need to interrupt policing is certainly one of them but this is much bigger again you know racism is systemic and it infiltrates all of our systems and so yes there is there's policy there there ideas there thoughts about how we can permeate each of those systems in order to bring real change yeah
0: um, and I understand that Bishop Barber's Moral Monday movement for June 20, 2020 that's right. also is developing a, a comprehensive statement, too.
1: That's right. The Poor People's Campaign is certainly, which is, you know, continuing the work of Dr. King right. and that legacy um, is certainly uh, has certainly begun to think really clearly and right. um, accurately about how we can address issues of poverty. Yeah. You know, that's... If we don't talk about poverty, and particularly the ways that poverty impacts the African American community in this country, and it's not coincidental that black people are poor, right? right? Right. It's not accidental. And, and so addressing the issues of poverty will also address issues. One of the ways we address issues of poverty is to address issues of poor schooling, to address issues of mass incarceration, right? It's all tangled up and entwined with one another. But certainly I do um, encourage people to look at the Poor People's Campaign that's being led by William Barber at this point.
0: So I just wanna underscore that we are, I think our agenda and our sacred contract is made up of three parts, what you're gonna learn how you're gonna pray and what you're gonna act on. And let's learn from the poor people's, I mean, I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter Comprehensive Plan and also the Poor People's Campaign Comprehensive Plan. They've got rich websites where you can go and learn, 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 and then move toward through praying to acting. So um, I've got a, ooh take care of you here <laughs> <laughs> you're a woman who worked on all, all night long um so you've got to go to work now let's talk about voter suppression sure and the voter implosion voting implosion yeah. we had last week mm-hmm. and let's go ahead and do the full s- disclaimer that you are a candidate for an elected position That's right and so kind of bring us up to speed on all of that and Mm -hmm. you're in the middle of it what how are you thinking and feeling
1: that's right yeah so i'm actually going to take this opportunity i want to speak to white people who are parts and members of largely predominantly white churches um, in atlanta because i haven't had a platform to name this Uh, but if you look at the polling sites that were closed down. And St. Luke's, you're implicated in this as well. That's right. If you look at the polling sites that were were shut down, they were, the vast majority of them were white congregations in white neighborhoods and in in white areas. Yeah. So my district was actually largely unimpacted by polling places being closed because we're a majority black district. So all of the black churches in my district that have been polling places for the last multiple decades were still polling places. They were still open, so people weren't confused. There there weren't any signs for them to have to read that said, oh, by the way, your polling place has been closed and you need to go to X location, which is a form of voter suppression, right? That didn't happen. And so I'm actually using this platform to say to white churches in this city, keep your doors open. People knowing where their precinct is is really, really essential and the reality is because we live in a system that actually doesn't want people to vote as much as they can, there aren't good mechanisms for people to know in advance that their polling place has been closed. So there were a number of instances of people getting a letter that their precinct was closed and had been relocated the day after election. So I I, I just wanna name, I think that white churches are very much responsible for that. And I know COVID-19 is real and that people are dying, but the black community has been hit so much harder by COVID-19 than the white community, and we kept our churches open. And we kept our churches open because we still, fundamentally African-Americans, do still believe that voting matters and that getting people out to vote can make a difference. So yes, we can talk a lot about voter suppression, but because we're in a church, we're in a white church that had their polling place closed. That's right. I just wanted to name that.
0: No, and, and I really appreciate your doing that. I, I really appreciate your critique I have rethought that decision over and over and over again. And we were not sufficiently looking at all of the impact. That's right. Because we really were looking at it through the lens of the COVID thing. And I don't think it would have been the same decision had we known now, then, what we know now. And I'm really glad you called it out yeah. right now.
1: I mean, it's just so, like, when you look at the list of like, churches that are closed, I mean, it's so clear, it's so stark. And so, um, but I do want to speak to kind of this larger issue. So um, when I've been out in the protest, there's always someone who holds a sign that says vote, like at these protests, right? Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, vote. Black people showed up and voted, and they showed up to try to vote last Tuesday. And there are people who stood in line for six hours through rainstorms in order to cast their ballot. This is not about people not being willing to vote. People wanna vote, but we've made it incredibly difficult. You know, my, my wife said to me, I don't understand how it is that I can cash a check using my phone, right? I don't even have to go to the bank. I can just take a picture with my phone and cash a check and it will show up in my account, but somehow we can't figure out how to vote by mail and we can't do we can't seem to figure out how to get people their ballots when they requested. This is not accidental. Sure there were major there's COVID-19 and there're lack of poll workers and churches pulling out and saying we don't want to be polling precincts and there there's a lot of things that we can name but this isn't all accidental. There is some real I think complicity of a whole lot of people who are are saying, you know, well, it's okay if people don't vote. It's okay if we make it harder. It's okay if we make it so you have to stand in line for six hours and need to bring a chair. and it's not okay. that's that's not okay. If we want to see real change on a policy level, if we believe in the democracy that we say we believe in, then we have to make we have to make voting accessible. Yeah, it's just essential. Yeah So where I am, I, I'm waiting for my votes to uh, be counted for what? Uh, so I'm running for State Senate, uh, State Senate District 41, which is out in Stone Mountain, Tucker, um, Clarkston, that area. And here we are on Sunday, so I don't know, five days after the election, and we still don't have the results. Um, and so I've been waiting, and, and honestly, waiting is not a terrible thing. There are much worse things that I could be doing, um, but I, I'm, I'm waiting for for our county to figure out how to count all of the thousands and thousands of people's votes who came through the mail. And I'm grateful that people chose to to use that option and I hope that people will continue. Those of you who did vote by mail, if you're not over 65 and you couldn't check the box that says send me my ballots by mail for the rest of the cycle, please go ahead and submit your request to vote by mail. Um, I think it's a really great option that we have in Georgia. We just gotta figure out on the back end how to count all of those votes. Um, otherwise you have somebody like me who's sitting in limbo. Um, but I'm not I'm not complaining about my uncertainty. Um, Because there are a lot worse places that I could be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what are you doing this afternoon?
1: So this afternoon, I'm going, I'm going to feed people uh, outside in the park at Woodruff Park. Um, Actually, All Saints Episcopal Church is our sponsor this week who um, made lunches for us. And so we will distribute food to people who are a part of our parish, right, our congregation, and I'll sit with them. I have some good news to deliver. So we've been working intentionally about helping people get signed up for their stimulus checks. So a $1,200 check for someone who lives outside is huge. And so we've been helping get people signed up. And uh, so I have some good news to deliver to a couple of folks today that their forms have been submitted and gotten cleared and their checks are on the way. how long it'll take we don't know but but they're on their way and so I'm actually really excited to to share that news um, and and really excited to just be able to be with people who who fundamentally believe that that there is something really valuable and and good about gathering together with each other to share a meal and to and to pray and to be with one another even in the midst of their extreme poverty yeah. Um, so that's what I'll do this afternoon and then um chances are there's a good chance I'll go back out onto the the streets for the protests this this evening this evening yeah
0: thank you very much for taking very valuable time out of your schedule when you could have been resting uh from last night and getting ready for this afternoon but this has been a very important conversation to me and uh let's keep it up okay
1: absolutely thank you Ed. thanks for for deeming this important enough to oh, interrupt your usual programming oh absolutely
0: this. very very. Right. god bless Good.
1: thank you blessings to you as well
0: thank you okay. so thank you all for being with us um stay tuned uh, we have another forum uh jason Hart, uh, J- tim hartley and jason Lyon are just amazing and uh kim and i are going to put on our masks and leave because we have this uh regulation that to get into this place or to get out of it, you have to have a mask on. God bless.
1: Thank you, everybody.